Tonight's scripture is from Luke 2, 29 to 35. Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul, to your own soul too. The word of the Lord. I know that it is a little weird to talk about the baby Jesus in July. That we don't, that's not commonly done. You don't talk about the baby Jesus in July. You talk about the baby Jesus in winter. Then, of course, in spring, you talk about the death and resurrection of the grown up Jesus. And then, summer, usually, if you mention Jesus at all, it's he's just walking around places mostly. Um, but we have been telling children's Bible stories this uh, liturgical year, and we've been telling them to sort of re-examine them as adults. And we've gone through now the uh, Old Testament Bible stories, and we're moving into the New Testament. And actually, you know, it is more authentic because um, the actual birth of Christ was July 19th, so this works out pretty well. It's more accurate if we want to be honest with our children. Okay, I just lied to him if they're here. That, that, that didn't, he wasn't really born on July 19th. But it's a good story. Well, this whole, this story is a good story. The birth of Jesus is such a good story. It's filled with the supernatural and the spiritual and angels, the spirit of God. It's filled with outsiders, old people and a little girl. And then the baby, the baby. It takes place in little hill villages and a barn in a town, and finally in the seat of power in Jerusalem. All this takes place with the repeated reminder by the author of the larger political and religious context that is happening. Luke tells us, as this story unfolds, it, that this story unfolds in the days of King Herod of Judea and that a decree went out from the Emperor Augustus. Luke tells us who is in power, but goes out of his way to make clear that none of them are involved, that, that they, all the, they are not actors in this arrival of God's revelation to God's people. The arrival of very, God's very self in this world takes place among the powerless, not the powerful. A barren woman gives birth to the prophet that will hail the arrival of the Son of God. God's messenger is sent to a young country girl to announce that she will be the mother of the revelation of God. A choir of angels herald the birth of the Savior of the world. They sing glory to God out in the middle of nowhere to a few sheep herders. There is no powerful among these people. The angels, they sing that the savior of the world was just born in a barn to an unmarried country girl. 
This is all, of course, not the way the people would have expected the arrival of the revelation of God to occur. Because, uh, you know, way back then, in this early culture, it was so underdeveloped that the only people that mattered, the people who controlled things, were really only prestigious men, men with positions and authority. I know it's hard to believe that, conceive of a culture so unenlightened, but really, that's what it was like back then. So in this story of Jesus' birth, Luke makes it very clear that none of the powerful or the authorities were involved. Even those with some small degree of position or power are mitigated. Zachariah, a priest, is shut up by the angels for this part of the story. Uh, he doesn't get a say. Joseph, who is of the royal line of David, he doesn't get anything at all. Even when the revelation of God is brought to the temple in the section that Neil read to us. He is brought to this temple that is dedicated to the worship of God. There is not one temple, official temple event. They don't receive this revelation of God in God's temple. There's no proclamation by the high priest that God has come into the world. The awaited salvation of Israel has arrived, is now here among us. No, no one even knows that God's Son, the Savior, is at the temple. Jesus is identified as the revelation of God in only a quiet conversation with a layman, not a professional, not a priest or a scribe, not by anyone with any official position, just an old guy who the Holy Spirit has spoken to. And the only thing that even resembled a public official announcement was by an old widow who spoke about the child to anyone who was willing to listen, which would likely not be that many since women were not supposed to speak in the temple. God's revelation slips into the world barely noticed. According to Luke, the revelation of the salvation of the world purposely comes through the back door, stays in the barn, and is announced on the margins. The people who are supposed to be in charge don't even know yet. Certainly, this is not a new insight, and I have always thought it was beautiful that something so big happens in such a small way, that something so powerful happens in such a powerless way. I've thought of this, but always with a tinge of uneasiness, being a man of privilege in an official position. I bought this toy. I'm not going to tell you who it's for. I don't want you talking. But you've probably seen it, right? It's this uh, thing. It goes, it's very, it's like a little round thing, but it can get big without changing its shape. I'm sure you've seen it. It's like you, it's called the Haberman Sphere. And I got uh, very intrigued by this toy story. Well, not the toy story, but the story of this toy. Yeah, you can just go in and out like that. It's like this spiky looking sphere and it's made out of color plastic and it's like this big around and you can, it, you can get like, it can get really huge. The Haberman Sphere. 
Okay, okay, that's not a very fun name for a toy. I don't think any kid is asking for that by name. It's not very catchy. But the toy, you've seen them everywhere, was like, when it came out, it was just, it became everywhere. This toy was everywhere when it came out. It sold, you know, I think, like, when it was first year, five million toys or something like this. How do I know this? You're like, how do I know how many units a toy costs? Well, because I'm a good parent. You know, like any good parent, every parent knows these things if you're going to buy a toy. Whenever you buy anything for your kid, you know, if you're a good parent, you thoroughly research it, you know, and you determine if it's safe, you determine if it's appropriate for the child's age, if it corresponds with the child's learning style, if the values of the company correspond with your own. And plus, I found an old issue of The New Yorker with an article about it. This kinetic sculptor, the story goes, Chuck Haberman, who has a degree in mechanical engineering from Columbia and a degree in fine art from Cooper Union, he was fascinated by transformations. As an artist and an engineer, that's what he was fascinated by transformations. And he got this idea about this thing, something that could change size, could go from little to big, could change size without changing his shape. And he studied and he tried and tried to work out and make something like this happen, and he just was unable to do it forever. And then he went on this retreat once. He's a practicing Buddhist, and he was at this retreat meditating, and all of a sudden this image just appeared to him. He knew exactly how he could do it, how he could use this complex configuration of scissor hinges, and he could make this sphere that would expand and contract easily. So he made some sculptures based on the idea, and then he thought, you know, this can have real practical uses. I mean, not that art is, you know, not impractical things like art are worthy as well, but he's a mechanical engineer as well. So he thought this could be, this whole system could be good. So he brought it to NASA, he brought it to medical technology companies, he brought it to architects, and everybody looked at it and said, that's really cool, but they had no idea what they could do with it. Then somebody suggested he make a toy out of it. So he did. And he made this Haberman spear. And uh, he got somebody to manufacture it, and nobody bought it. Nobody, it was amazing that it was. Kids didn't want to play with the, the Haberman spear, you know. But then, a minister was giving a sermon. He had come across this toy it, at the Foundry United Methodist Church in Washington, D.C., and he used this toy as a sermon illustration. And back in the day, 1998, when this happened, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton were sitting in that church and heard that sermon. And as they were leaving, Hillary mentioned that she would love to get one of those for Bill. He seemed intrigued by it. And so the minister just handed it to Bill. And he began playing with it as they stepped out of this church. It just so happened that a giant news story had broke about uh, this Monica Lewinsky and they were all, there was media surrounding the church and everybody was shouting questions about Monica Lewinsky and Bill was just playing with this thing, making it bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller. So on, on the front page of every paper, on every news uh, channel, everywhere, you have this media ambushing, yelling about Monica Lewinsky and just images of Bill Clinton making it bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller. 
They couldn't keep them on the shelves after that. Everybody had seen this, and this Haberman Sphere was just, uh, it was a giant, it was a giant hit. Everybody was buying them, and uh, everybody was proclaiming it as a new classic, like a Lincoln Log classic, you know? Because that's what uh, Lincoln, everybody wants a classic. These Lincoln Logs or a Slinky or whatever, and this Haberman Sphere had entered this realm. But the toy business is no place for a Buddhist or a sculptor. See, the toy industry, industry used to be about making toys. Everybody wanted to make that classic, one kids would play with, would continue to play with, and for generations and generations. Toys, you wouldn't believe this, they used to be marketed to the parents, actually. Um, and these toys were like, mostly early on, performed some sort of social function that the parents would want to get for the kids, and they would play with it, like blocks, for instance. It's very practical to help kids learn. Baby dolls first were um, to teach uh, young girls how to be nurturing. But things changed. The toy industry was the first one to start marketing directly to children. They discovered aspirational age marketing. That they sell children the charms of being older than they actually are. So the baby doll gave way to the Barbie doll. And the doll was no longer this child's baby, but the Barbie doll became the child's role model. Now, seeing the success in the toy industry, many other industries started marketing directly to children. Now, the whole thought that they wouldn't seems uh, ridiculous and naive. But with this change in strategy, the toy industry, it exploded. And as a result of this, actual toys became secondary to the actual selling of toys. Toys that are good, toys that kids want to play with, are no longer the focus at all. It's toys that kids want to buy that everybody's looking to make now. They used to test toys, they'd get kids in a room and they would watch them play with the toys. Now, they watch the kids watch the commercials for the toys to see how they react. The actual thing is no longer important. What is important is what's called perceived playability. Now, thrown into this world, Chuck Haberman was at a loss. He just thought the thing was cool. He wanted to solve a problem. He didn't know anything or cared about perceived playability. But everybody told him as his market share began to sink that he needed to make a new version. He needed to do something different. He needed to protect his place on that toy shelf, just getting bigger and smaller wasn't enough. So he tried to, he made a glow-in-the-dark one. Um, he made one with electronics on it. But he continued to be crowded out of the toy store shelves by newer toys, louder toys, and flashier toys. Until finally he was approached by the people who owned the SpongeBob SquarePants property. And they proposed that he put SpongeBob SquarePants on a Haberman sphere. This Buddhist sculptor, fascinated with transformations, who solved this beautiful mechanical problem while meditating, was now going to use his revelation as a backdrop for SpongeBob SquarePants.
Is Luke then trying to tell us that the revelation of God is only for the powerless, the marginalized, the outsiders? It seems like it from the way the birth story is constructed, but the words of Simeon tell us differently. At the culmination of this birth story, Simeon identifies the baby Jesus as God's salvation, a light for revelation, but also as the cause of the falling and rising of many, that Jesus will be the sign that will be opposed and will reveal the inner thoughts of many. Simeon quietly tells us that Jesus will be the light that both enlightens and exposes. This is always what God's presence does. Jesus comes into the world as this baby, powerless. And this light exposes us, judges us, and reveals to us our salvation. This is a story that can be told anytime.